All right, I'd like to welcome to the show speaker, author, and coach Mark Black. Mark is a heart and double lung transplant recipient, turned four-time marathon runner, and is the only man in history to run a marathon with someone else's heart and lungs. He is a resilience expert that helps people break through their limitations and his coaching programs provide clients the tools to transform their adversity into their competitive advantage. Mark doesn't just teach resilience, he embodies it. Born with a life-threatening heart defect, Mark underwent two open heart surgeries before the age of one. He battled his condition and its limitations for 22 years until he was forced to deal with the biggest obstacle of his young life. His doctor informed him that his heart was failing and without a rare and dangerous heart and double lung transplant, he would not see his 25th birthday. In 2002, Mark was fortunate that a suitable donor was found and he not only survived the surgery, but less than three years later, Mark became the only man in history to run a marathon with someone else's heart and lungs. And then he did it three more times. He has spoken to and inspired tens of thousands of people around the world. And tonight he is our guest on Kowalski Analysis. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Do you get embarrassed when people read that? Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of <laughs> weird. Yeah. Like, I want to meet this dude. It yeah, yeah. Tell, tell my wife these things because she doesn't buy it. <laughs> right, right, right. That's awesome, man. So how, what were you like growing up? I mean, you know, I, I, I think I watched in one of your videos that you actually played basketball, huh? Yeah, which is ironic for a couple of reasons. Uh, obviously, I, was, I had some health challenges, but I was also, uh, well, I'm, five, I'm 4'11 now. So when I was a kid, I was even smaller, uh, obviously. Um, but yeah, played played ball and soccer and baseball a little bit uh, at a pretty competitive level until I was about 14. So, yeah. Did the, 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 the cardio help you, your condition, did they tell you? Yeah, I mean, the doctors were kind of um, encouraging, cautiously encouraging about it, I guess would be the way to put it. So uh, the cardio is obviously good for cardiovascular health, but at the same time, uh, too much stress was going to be dangerous. So it was one of those kind of like catch 22s of trying to find the, the middle ground. And, and in fact, I, I was discouraged from playing sports when they got to a point where they felt like my competitiveness was going to outweigh my, uh, my need to protect myself, I guess, or my, or my intelligence or whatever. So we decided that, uh, or we didn't decide cause I didn't want to, but it was decided for me that I had to stop playing competitive sports at that point. Right. Right. Sure. So when you got the uh, the news about the surgery, I mean, it, I guess, um, I mean, what was that like? Where you where you must have been pretty scared because I'm I can't like what is the survival rate on something like that? It, it's got to be pretty low. Yeah, I mean, so so I was listed for the transplant. Uh, I was when I was 23. I was told like you've got a year to live unless you get a transplant, kind of thing. And and when you're put on the list, at least in my case the odds of even getting the surgery are, are before you die are, are pretty minimal. Uh, in my case, because I needed three organs and because I was smaller, I was going to be a harder match. There were a lot of things kind of working against me. And so to be honest, we didn't, we didn't have a lot of hope, but it, the alternative was to kind of go home and, and wait to die. So there's not a whole lot to risk there in that sense. Um, and then uh, I ended up waiting on the transplant list for about a year. And the last six months of that, I, I, my condition was so bad that I was in the hospital because it was just too dangerous not to be. So by the time the call came, um, I was more than ready because again, the ultimate, you know, death, I was looking at death in the face every day at that point. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it, there's obviously a little bit of trepidation anytime you go into surgery, but again, the, the, 
the risks of not having it were almost as high as the risks of having it at that point. And so, so it was, it was pretty easy to go into that pretty calmly. Sure. I want to talk about, I watched your Ted talk actually. And I want to talk about, I'm guessing what you went over in that Ted talk was a resilience roadmap. I want to kind of break down those points, but before I do, I was just like thinking about, you know, what happened with you or your, you know, you're kind of staring death in the face and, and, um, you know, one of the things you mentioned in that TED talk was basically, I don't know that you use this quote, but you, you basically said, you know, life is 10% what happens to you, 90% how you respond to it. And, you know, I had, a, I had a near death experience in my life about nine years ago. And um, I, I know what it did for me. Like I was not the best version of myself at the time. And, you know, faced with the, the end, it was like, it snapped me out of it. And it forced me to live very intentionally now to the point where I've written books and, you know, started a nonprofit. I've done all these great things, but I'm like, it was such a gift. It was such a blessing for me to get that because if I didn't, I don't know, I would have probably just drifted, you know, who knows how long I would have coasted before I ever came out of it. Maybe never. Do you yeah. view it yeah, that way? Yeah, for sure. I mean, in, in my case, I often say I had the blessing of being born with, with an illness and I had, you know, open heart surgery at day one. So to a certain degree, I didn't know any different, right? Um, you know, critical illness, critical illness and, and congenital illness was, was a part of my life all along. Certainly it got more severe uh, before the transplant and, and it was a, you know, a, a reality check that this thing that was going to come someday for most of my life eventually was, was now here uh, and time was definitely ticking away. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's got an incredibly focusing effect when you realize um that your days are numbered and the thing is of course everybody's days are numbered they just we just don't know how many days they right. are um and so you know even 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 now i mean I'm, I'm 18 years out from the transplant which is longer than than i was expected to make it uh but the, the you know the organs are not they don't last forever and and uh because of the drugs you take to prevent rejection of the organs you're susceptible to infection and so you know with covid and everything else that that's happening uh, right now my risks are higher than the average person and so it's really easy to kind of be mindful of the fact that you know life is precious and it can be over in a heartbeat and all of those things so, all that being said there also has to be this balance of like you know people who've gone through near-death things love to say live every day like it's your last day but that gets really impractical really quickly right, right? spend all your money yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Live, uh, you know, let's have an amazing three weeks. And then what happens when you're still alive and your bank account's empty and you've got no future. So, and we, and, you know, I've got three kids now, so I got to think about them. So yeah, it's a balancing act between sort of being present and living today as best as you can while also hoping you're going to be around in 10 years and being ready for that too. Yeah. That's got to give you a sense of urgency, like just knowing what you just told me about you know the organs don't last forever i think about the uh did you ever see the movie fight club yeah remember when he got the guy in the convenience store and he like pulls out the gun he's like what did you want to do when you were younger and he's like i wanted to go to college takes his id he's like if you don't enroll by monday at noon i'm gonna kill, kill you and your family or whatever and it was like he gave him this gift because it forced him to stare death in the face and uh I don't know. Like, I think one of the most powerful exercises I ever did with a life coach was I wrote my own eulogy. Yeah. It, it really woke me up to like, shit, this is what I, I want people to say that this about me, but they would not say this if I died now. So I have to start figuring that out. So I actually developed a course and I have that. That's the very first thing I have them do. 
because it's so powerful when you look when you think about like you had said even in, in one of your talks i think it was the ted talk where you're like you don't want anybody to say like on your on your tombstone this here lies someone that was about to do something really cool you know like so i i guess you know before we go into the moments or the uh the resilience roadmap of the points how do you because again we had a different experience you had you know yours was different than mine but both of us had this wake-up call how do you snap people out of that their complacency because is there a way like that people are going to watch this and they'll be like sounds great but then they won't do anything so how, how do you do that yeah i mean so so it's interesting you brought that up in the the obituary exercise i have i have uh it's a chapter in the book that i wrote uh that, that leads people through the same idea and and i it came to me because i i had to i literally wrote i didn't write my obituary in the hospital but i did write um letters to each of my three brothers and to my parents um because i was uh, the nature of my heart condition was such that that i was at high risk for cardiac arrest so the the big picture was like my overall condition is deteriorating gradually over time but at the same time there's this constant threat of like i my heart could go into a crazy rhythm and stop at any second which is the whole reason i was i was in hospital in the first place to be monitored 24 7. and so i couldn't count on like having that you know goodbye moment or those there was goodbye days where where we knew the end was coming because i might go to sleep and not wake up in the morning so i wrote those letters and again same idea right it has this very focusing effect of like what what did i what am i proud of what am i not proud of what do i wish i could change what are the things i'm going to do the second i'm out of here if i ever get that chance uh and i think you know writing your obituary is a great way to do that um having having some conversations with with the people you care about you know whether they're your parents if they're still alive or your kids or your or your or your family members about like your your regrets um the things that you you know even, even taking a few minutes to just go through and go you know what are the things that i wish i could fix what are the things who do i need to reconnect with who do i need to say sorry to all those kinds of things are really good reminders for people and the, and the truth is look we're human and so what what happens? I, I don't know about you, but I can say that overall, I think I have a pretty good perspective on life, but I still have moments where it's like, I'm just like everybody else. I get caught sure. up in traffic, you know, someone cuts me off in traffic and I get pissed off. And it's like, what well, does that matter in the grand scheme of life? Of course not. Right. Um, I'd love to say that every single day I wake up with this like burning purpose to make sure that I use every second of this day as best as I can. There are days that I wake up and I feel like crap and I don't have the energy today and I don't want to do it. And like, that's human. It's just, it's about on a grand scheme, the majority of the time, what's your mindset and what do you do? And I think that's kind of what we have to be, be shooting at. And if you can find a way to be perfect, God bless you. But um, I haven't figured that out yet. Yeah. I mean, but even if you like, you know, and here's two, two, two coaches telling you that live very intentionally, write your obituary. It's free advice. Everybody that's listening, take a moment to do that. It's going to probably take you, you know, an hour or two if you really think it through. Um, and it'll wake you up. But even if it changes its trajectory, let's say 10%, you know, yep. over time, that, that can be huge. So again, it's not about perfection, but it can make radical differences in your life. So go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. 100%. I mean, I, I, you're right. It all comes back to, to just anytime a person listening to this, if you can make a 1% improvement every day, imagine where you are 100 days from now, right? And, and so 
it's all about these little tiny incremental things that seemingly in the moment don't seem like a big deal. One little pivot, one little shift, one little exercise, like, will your life be dramatically different tomorrow? No, but if you stack those and you're consistent with them over time, it's incredible what happens. You know, I, I, um, have run some marathons and what I tell people often about that is because often I'll get people say, wow, yeah, that's so cool. Like, that's amazing that you did that. I could never do that often is what people will say. And I always say the same thing. I say, no, you just don't want to. Right. Right. Which is fine. Like that doesn't have to be everybody's aspiration, but the point is just like the marathon is such a great analogy for life because really, yeah, there's a fraction of people in the world who are going to ever be competitive at a marathon, but pretty much anybody that can put one foot in front of the other can run one. Uh, it's just a question of how long it's going to take you and how bad do you want to do it, right? And so I love that as an analogy for life because I think the same is true in most things you want to do in life. If you if your desire is big enough and your work ethic is good enough and you put in the effort consistently over time, you get results. It's just how it works. Yeah. That's, I mean, have you read The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy? Yeah. Totally reminds me of what you, what you just said reminds me of that. It's just, initially, it might not seem like big changes, but over time, they start to stack on top of each other. And then you look back and you're like, holy crap, how far I came. And, you know, and then, then that flywheel starts spinning faster and then it just gets crazy. It's a, you know, it takes on a whole life of its own. So what yeah, you- we all, we all get that instinctively when it comes to negatives, right? Like we all know the power of a negative habit, right? And you, people right. talk about, you know, whether, whether it's addiction or just something less, less severe, but that the bad habits in their life, the same is the same principle works in the opposite direction, right? Like if you start going to the gym every day and, and you build that habit, then you can fall off the wagon for three days and get back on again. And you're still, your consistent pattern is going to be to do that good thing. Cause it's become part of, part of your, your daily routine. And so, yeah, build, build more habits and stack those on top of each other. And um, it's, it's amazing the transformations that can happen over an extended period of time when you do that. Yeah. What is your condition called, if you don't mind me asking? So the condition I had before, there were kind of two of them. So one was called congestive heart failure, which just means because your heart isn't working properly, it doesn't circulate the, the fluid in your body properly. So I had routine fluid and in the lungs, especially. So that, that made it difficult to breathe. And then I had another one called ventricular tachycardia, which is a big medical word that just means the bottom chambers of the heart would spontaneously race out of control for no real reason. And then I had this this, um, the bottom left chamber of my heart. So your heart has four chambers, two on the top and two in the bottom. The bottom left one was enlarged and thickened. And so the problem with that is that enlarged is bad, but then thickened is worse because then you've got this like strong muscle, this strong pump, but in order for your heart to work well, it's got to also be able to relax, right? So it contracts to pump the blood out. And then if it's working properly, it relaxes like a balloon and fills back up with blood. And if the walls are stiff and thick and it doesn't relax, which is what was happening with me, then it would pump and pump, but pretty soon it's not relaxing and filling. And so there's, it's not pumping much of anything. And so that's, that was the kind of layman's explanation for what was going on. And so it was just a matter of time before um, the heart was just going to, was just going to give out. And, and it had lasted, look, when I had my second surgery at a year old, doctor said, he'll be needs more surgery by the time he starts school probably. And instead I made it to 23. And then at that point I needed a whole new heart, but, but it lasted a lot longer than it was supposed to. So you got siblings. Yeah. Three younger brothers who are all, uh, all healthy and, uh, and active and all above six feet tall, ironically enough. So <laughs> what are they doing for work? Are they, yeah. You, yeah. They're all, they're all working the, the, uh, 
the second youngest just had his first baby of uh, first child about eight weeks ago or something like that now. And uh, they're all married and have kids and they're, you know, living successful lives. So driven like you. Driven yeah, I think so. I mean, maybe, maybe not. To, I, I'm a very like goal oriented kind of person just by default. I think, I think that was true before my transplant. So, um, you know, probably not their resumes would look different. I don't know that that means my life is better. I think they right. just, they've got different priorities. Sure. Yeah. Just, just always curious to see if that, uh, you know, your, your health challenges played out, you know, if it translated over into it. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, so. Right. I think, I think they witnessed my decline and, and they also had to go through a ton of stuff over the year that I was on the transplant list because the closest transplant center to where I live was uh, for lungs was uh, about a thousand miles away. So I had to move. So my dad initially and mom switched places with them at one point, but we, we left them at home and moved away for like the better part of a year. And so they at ages 2017 and 14, I think they all were at that point, um, you know, had a very weird lived experience for about a year where their brother was dying and one of their parents was gone and they were trying to kind of keep living this quasi normal life for themselves. It was, so it affected everybody for sure. sure. You, your uh, parents still alive? Yeah, blessed. They're uh, they're both uh, healthy and in mid sixties and take good care of themselves. So hopefully they're around for a long time. Yeah, same for me. Well, my dad passed, but my mom's still still healthy, and my stepfather. Um, so I, I guess I, you know, I was again, I was listening to the the talk earlier, a couple of your talks, a couple of videos, and we have a lot of the same philosophies. Uh, where I'm not, you know, I'm huge on personal accountability, personal responsibility, taking responsibility for your life and really that you're capable of anything. You know, if you, like you said, if you work hard and you don't quit, you can pretty much get to wherever you want. I mean, if it feels natural to you, uh, you know, like you said, you're not going to play in the NBA, but you know, it's got to feel natural to you, but if it feels natural and you're willing to work for it. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I've pushed back a lot about this whole, like, there's a lot of victim mentality, right? Like in the world right now, a lot of people, you know, blaming <laughs> their problems on other people. And I, I guess I just wanted to throw a question out there. Why do you think that's dangerous? I mean, it's it's dangerous for a few reasons. It, from a, At a personal level, it's dangerous for you if you decide that you're a victim because then you can't fix it, right? right? If it's somebody else's fault, first of all, if you've ever tried to change somebody else's behavior and they didn't want to change, you know how well that works. It doesn't, right? So... The minute you start saying it's so-and-so's fault, you put all of the power for your life in their hands and then hope that they're going to do something to help you. And if they don't, then you're out of luck because you've given them all the power to do something. And so I think people have confused causation or, or not even causation. People have confused things that influence their situation or circumstances with their power to do something about it. So in other words, to say that, you know, like, so for example, I, I'm, I'm born with this illness, right? Um, let's pretend instead of being born with this illness that my illness was caused because a doctor screwed something up in, in the first surgery that I had, right? right? They, they, you know, no ill intent, but they screwed something up. Well, the fact that they did that gives me every justification in the world to be angry at them and, and blame them and 
that's, that would be accurate and true, but doing that would do nothing to make the situation better, right? And so people make this, this they blend those two things together and instead of separating them and, and understanding that by taking responsibility yourself, doesn't mean you're saying that whatever happened to you was okay. It doesn't mean that whoever may have wronged you was right. Right. It just means it's done. Yeah. And so now what are you going to do about it? Right. And if you're, if your answer to what you're going to do about it is to sit around and wait for somebody else to fix it, it's going to be a long, hard life. <laughs> exactly. I love it. I actually have a sweatshirt. It's like, nobody cares, work harder. It was something Lamar Jackson said, uh, I think in response to people, you know, wanting him to be, play victim about not getting drafted higher or something. And I'm like, I, I get exactly what you said. It's not going to change anything. You can, you know, cry about it all day long, or maybe there is, you know, maybe it was wrong what happened to you, but you have the power to change it. You can get people to feel sorry for you. You can even use it as an excuse to not do anything with your life, which is what you very easily could have done. You could have been like, well, man, you know, I had this terrible heart condition and, and I mean, but no, you did the opposite. And I go back to like, you know, there's a great book, Think and Grow Rich. It says every adversity has the seed of an equal or greater benefit. I mean, so that's the, that's the key right there. Regardless of whatever your challenge is, whatever happened to you, there's a benefit. If you believe you have to look for it, you have to find it. You have to believe that it's there. And then you got to work hard. You've had to work very hard, I'm sure, to run a marathon. I mean, first off, your legs weren't that long, but then you had somebody else's heart and lungs. But yeah. and so... But I think I think it starts with the fact that you have to believe that it can be a benefit, you know, otherwise you just take the easy road, which the victim, I think the victim mentality is the easy way out, but it's just a cop out. It's an easy way out in them. It's 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 that whole short term versus long term thinking right and short term versus long term results. So so victim mentality is the short term easy fix in the moment makes you feel better in the moment it solves the problem long-term it causes you more pain and and does more damage mm -hmm. and so i think that's that's actually the bigger issue with our society today than even than victimhood is that we all we all tend to, to think and act based on short-term results and short-term payoffs right so we do what feels good now because it feels good now never mind if it causes us more pain later never mind if uh, here's the thing 99% of the time, I, I struggle to find an example where doing the hard thing now isn't more beneficial to you than doing the easy thing now, right? So do the hard things now because it makes your life better long-term versus doing the easy thing now, which makes your life crappier long-term. Is it better for you right now to spend the five bucks or to save the five bucks? Mm. It's easier to spend it, but long-term you do that over time. It makes for a crappier retirement because you got less money laying around, right? Skip the workout today. That's easier. You don't have to work hard today. You get to take a break, but long-term, if you do that over and over again, what happens? You get up a few fat and, and out of shape and, and have heart issues and diabetes and whatever else. And the list goes on and on and on. So my, my personal philosophy has been for the last several years, I was able to kind of codify it into a sentence. And it's basically do hard things, right? Do whatever the hard thing is now. And, and if you're trying to decide between two things, whatever is the harder one is probably the right one. Um, and that like that, that translates to moral decisions too, right? Like if you're debating between two things, cause you're not sure what the right thing is to do, chances are good that whatever's more uncomfortable, it's probably the right decision. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Exercise, money, business, you name it. Like I can get a quick win now, but it's probably going to cost me more in the long term. And so what's the harder thing to do right now? 
Yeah. The other thing is when you do that repeatedly over time, you learn like it's like a muscle. You learn that it doesn't kill you to do difficult things. And so it makes it a little easier to approach the next difficult thing with more confidence because you know, yeah, it might suck a little bit, but it as long as as long as what you're doing is worth it, then we can endure tremendous discomfort. Yeah. You ever read The Miracle Morning? Yeah. I want to say how Rod talks about that. They're doing, doing the right thing versus the easy thing. Uh, I was trying to explain it to a friend of mine. I did this uh, this training a few years ago called Gap. And they were real big on being uh, people of your word. Like, you know, to the point where they were so focused on it to help you get the lesson. They're like, okay, we're going to break for lunch. And everybody, we want everybody back here in their seats at one o'clock. Is everybody good with that? Everybody would be like, yeah, you're not really even thinking about it when you agree to it. You're like, yeah, yeah. And then of course, it never fails. Somebody either walks in late or you're just not sitting in your chair at one o'clock and they're like, stop the meeting. They just stop every, they make this huge deal out of it. And they help you realize that how your word, um, not being a person of your word impacts the relationship, right? The intimacy of your relationships. And as you think about like, there's people, I, I don't know, you have people like this in your life, but I had people, they, you know, they, you know, you say to them, Hey, can you help me move on Saturday? And they go, yeah, I'll help you move. That's the easy thing. It's easy for them to say yes in that moment. Cause if they were to say no to you, then they're going to tell you why, well, why, why can't you help me? move? So let's say, yeah, I'll help you move. But then Saturday comes around and guess what? They don't show. So they took the easy way. And then they took the easy way again. And if you map that all the way out, like you're saying, imagine if you map that all the way out over a person's life, easy, 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 all the decisions it takes you to a far different place than you'd go to if you chose hard, 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 hard. Like, you know, you, you, you build a great life. You stack them one decision at a time. And it's really, you know, boils down to, I think, just delayed gratification is really what it's all about, right? You know, when it boils down all the way down. 100%, right? There's all kinds of data that shows that, that the, the better you are at delaying gratification, the better your life gets in pretty much every aspect, right? And so that, to do that requires getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. It gets, it requires you to be willing to not only like, to not only cope with the challenges that inevitably come to everybody, but I would argue to intentionally seek out doing hard things on purpose because it makes you better at it. And so like, I love, I do the cold shower thing, for example, and I do it precisely because i don't want to yeah right i do the scottish showers you ever heard of those yeah yeah yeah, I, yeah. I turn it all the way cold in the beginning for about the first 20 seconds and then at the very end to close my pores but you're right it's the same thing i think it does something good for my brain and my immune system but just the fact that i think it's making me a little bit harder like david goggins right like do something you yeah. ate every day just that 20 seconds of freezing water it makes me a little tougher i think i'm sorry no 100 percent. yeah like it's it's the, the people ask a lot. Um, one of the questions I get a lot from folks is like, how do I build my confidence? And I say your confidence comes from, from past experience, right? Your confidence comes from your own personal resume and your track record on doing things like this or things that you find difficult in the past. So I, I'm a big believer that one of the other exercises I have people do in the book is to go through and make a list of all the really hard things you've been through in your life not as a way to like feel sorry for yourself, but precisely the opposite to say, look at all the shit you've been through and you're still here, right? right? So what did you learn from that, A? And B, what character traits did you either hone, develop or strengthen as a result of going through that thing? So that you can then approach the next thing and go, wait a minute, you're the same person that did that. 
right? So all the time I'm thinking to myself when I'm approaching the next challenge, like, dude, you, you survived a heart lung transplant or man, you ran a marathon in a hurricane. Like if you can do that, then like, this is a piece of cake. And, and I, and I work on this every day and I still have to remind myself all the time. Right. Yeah. Like that's the other thing about this is listening. If you're listening to this right now and you're taking notes, awesome. Fantastic. Understand that next week, everything you're hearing is going to be tested and you have to decide if you're going to implement or not. Right. Like it doesn't, it's not a switch you get to flip and then you're done doing the work. Yeah. I, um, are you a believer? Are you Christian? Yeah. A lot of things you say are Christian principles. I do anything about suffering produces perseverance. I'm like, man, everything you're saying is like, yeah, I, I, I agree a hundred percent. Yeah. Did you, um, did you know that you were the only heart lung transplant to ever run a marathon when you set out to do this? No, I, um, I set out to do it. You know, it's interesting. I, I thought at the time that it was totally random. I'm not so sure it was totally random anymore. But I remember a roughly a week after the transplant, um, one of the first days that I was really conscious because I was, I woke up after the surgery, but I was heavily medicated. So I was not really there for several days. Um, and I remember sitting up and, and I was having a hard time sleeping because this strong, steady, rhythmic heartbeat was so foreign to what I was used to that it was echoing in my ear. Like it was hard to relax and, and kind of fall asleep. And, and I remember thinking like, I mean, obviously there's this whole mind, mind game around like somebody else's heart is beating in your chest, which is right. just a really weird thing to get your head around. Um, but then it also is like that heartbeat represents possibility that was not there eight days ago. Like there are things now that are probably possible for me that previously were not. I wonder, I wonder what's possible now. And it was in that kind of thought process that I went to wonder if I could run a marathon. No, I was like, it was seven days after surgery. I had hoses coming out of me and wires coming out of me. I weighed like 80 pounds and I'm a string bean because I haven't even put weight on my body in five days. I could barely walk. Um, but that was kind of the seed that, that led to, you know, pushing myself to jog on the treadmill for one day on the last day of hospital rehab, just to see if I could. And, and, and then to, you know, run the 5k and then to run a 10k and then, and then I'm just a naturally competitive person. So at that point, it's kind of like, okay, well, the logical thing probably would have been like, just run a 5k three days a week. And that kind of keeps you in shape and you're fine. But that I got bored with that really quickly. And I'm, I needed a reason to exercise beyond just it's good for me. Uh, and so it was the challenge of the next thing. And so I, I registered for a half marathon clinic and did that. And then you cross the finish line that and you're like, okay, well, I guess like a marathon's the next thing. Right. So let's do that. And, and I had done, yeah, I had, I had done a couple when it occurred to me, like, geez, I wonder if anybody else has done this. Um, and I mean, so that lines in the bio, I can't, I don't have definitive proof other than a thorough Google search didn't turn up anybody else, but. Right. Right. No, that's, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, that, if that's not the truth or that is the truth. So when you, when the heart was beating in your chest, I'm curious, was it just because, was it like, beaten because you know going through a, a surgery or was it just beating that much harder than the heart that you had before it was just yeah no it was just because it was striking no i forget what the heart rate was but it was normal it was just right. it was just strong and rhythmic and steady like my previous heart the bottom chambers or the top chambers were basically not beating at all they were fluttering they call right. it um so the just the impact of the beat was not at all the same and then it was 
irregularly irregular. So it would beat basically whenever it felt like it. Frank, thankfully, frequently enough that I wasn't I wasn't dead. Um, but there was no rhyme or reason to the rhythm, and 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 it had been that way for so long that that was my normal. Like I didn't I didn't know any different, right? But all of a sudden, this rhythmic heartbeat. Like I don't notice it today, but at that point, it was so foreign and different that it was just really noticeable. And so wow. it took a few days to adjust to it. Yeah. Do you know who's, uh, what did you get the heart and lungs from the same person? I did. Yeah. And I don't, I, I don't know. Um, I, I assume the question was, yeah, I, I don't know who, uh, I don't know anything about the donor, unfortunately. Right. Um, I was allowed to write a thank you note to the family that had to remain anonymous. So I couldn't give them my name or anything like that. And then if they chose to respond to me, uh, they could do that. And I wrote, I, I was so overwhelmed with gratitude. Like the third day I wrote a letter. Thankfully we didn't send it because I was still on pretty heavy morphine and it probably didn't make a lot of sense. Somebody proofread it and was like, you should write this again. Um, and so I wrote it again and then we didn't hear back. So, I mean, it's such a personal thing. Obviously this family has been through a tragedy. Uh, we know statistically speaking because of size and, and, and you can put a, a kidney of a bigger person and a smaller person, but you can't really put lungs of a big person and a small person because they have to be able to, to fully expand. So, you know, odds are pretty good. I have, I, I got the organs of someone's child and we don't know that for sure, but that's a pretty good possibility, which as a parent, I can't even wrap my head around. And so I've, I had, I had no expectation of a response and I didn't get one. And that's, that's cool. Hey, I mean, at least it's good for them to know that you're doing something with it. You know, they went to a good, somebody that's doing something. Yeah. That's, that's, that's my, that's my hope is that they're comforted by that. So let's go through a couple of these uh, resilience roadmaps points. So uh, one, yeah. of, one of the things you mentioned, I, I, don't, I could be wrong. I'm not even sure if this is a resilience roadmap. I just read that you had that, but I, I did list and, and list your points out from your TED talk. And one of the things you mentioned was live today. Um, you know, basically, you know, it takes me to another verse about, you know, Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. You know, like today has enough problems of its own. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So it's not, um, the, the roadmap is a, is a kind of an evolution of the first kind of 10 years of my speaking. And so Live Today didn't technically make it in there, but it's in there. Uh, and so the concept, it's, it's still like I wear this bracelet around my wrist every day that says Live Today on it. It'll be a tattoo someday if I ever get the balls to go do, get a tattoo. But, um, but basically, it's a two-folded principle. So the first part of it is, is Live Today you know, the, the saying goes live every day, like it's your last. Well, don't do that, but, but be alive every day, right? Like take the time every day to be grateful. Take the time every day to, to challenge yourself. Um, appreciate the fact that you're alive when there's no statistical reason why you should be, uh, all that stuff. Um, the, so the, the presence piece of it is big, especially today. Cause I think it's so bloody easy and I get caught, um, with these things, just not being present. It's just so easy to not be. The, the second part of it is don't wait, right? Like don't freaking wait for some magic moment or some permission from some whoever to go do whatever it is you want to do. Like I just met so many people uh, whose, whose favorite word is someday, right? right? And, and most of those people are never going to get around to doing those things that they say they want to do because there's an infinite number of tomorrows in their mind uh, until there isn't. And, right. and so it's about, you know, not again, not doing it with this like reckless abandon of I'm going to die tomorrow, but like time is finite. What the heck are you waiting for? Yeah. Gary V says you're going to die. <laughs> He's real blunt. He's like, just 
basically one day you're gonna die you're you act like you're, you're coming back this is it this you get one chance go all in you know go for it yeah and he also reminds you like i forget the statistical probability of being alive but it's insane right it's like, like four all billion take, to one or something yeah it's nuts the fact that you're even on the planet is like mind-boggling so just don't and then if you're listening to this and you live in north america uh i mean even if you don't but especially if you, if those are if those cases are true then you were born like at a time in a place where you have more opportunity than like virtually everybody on the planet right. and you're sitting there coming up with reasons why you can't do whatever it is you want to do like suck it up and do it man yeah turn off the television man turn netflix <laughs> off and make it happen so you mentioned gratitude because I'm, I'm big on gratitude like so when i made you know i made some sweeping changes in my life and when i did i struggled with depression because i literally was like just detox and everything you know drugs alcohol girls all of it friends um and i you know learned to practice from a coach actually was you know making gratitude lists so was that something that you developed where you did you struggle with depression after your surgeries was it hard for you to kind of get yourself to a positive state of mind yeah i had two kind of two depressive episodes i guess that were for periods that were really challenging the first one was was the kind of being diagnosed at the end, the end diagnosis where it's like, you've got a year to live through to being admitted to hospital. Um, especially when I got admitted to hospital, I was just kind of like fed up. I was like, I've given up everything. I've moved away from home. I've quit my job. My girlfriend and I of three years, who I thought I was going to marry broke up because she just couldn't handle the idea that I might die on her, which in retrospect, I totally empathize with, but at the time was, was pretty mad about, um, life was just not fair. And I was pissed. And then um, being admitted to hospital was just a further deterioration where what little sense of control I still had over my life, I felt was being taken away. Cause it was just like, okay, well now you're in these four walls until you get a transplant or until you die, whatever comes first. And so I sat there for, I don't know, two, three weeks, kind of just moping. And then my mom who had switched places with dad at that point, sat me down one day and was just like, what are you going to do? Like, you can keep feeling how you're feeling and thinking how you're thinking if you want to. I get it. I empathize, but how's it working? Like either, either you make some changes about what you're thinking about every day, or I don't know where you're going to be in three months from now, but it's not going to be a pretty place. And probably like most of us, when mom and dad try to give us advice, I, you know, brushed her off and told her to shut up or whatever. I think I said, whatever, mom. Um, but then I kind of clued in that, that, that was the one of the few things I could do something about was where I was putting my mental and emotional attention every day and focusing on what I still had versus what I had lost was a big piece of that. Right. So really that's gratitude. I didn't, I didn't probably call it that at the time, but it was understanding like, okay, I can look at the fact that I'm stuck in this room or I can look at the fact that I get to be in this place where I'm at a world-class medical facility and I have a chance at like these people did the first successful lung transplant in the world. There's literally no better place on the planet for somebody with my situation to be. How lucky am I that I'm here? I can be, um, you know, frustrated that I've got to quit my job and, and leave my life behind, or I can be grateful that somehow we're managing the finances to be able to do that. And so my only real stress is, is health related. It's not, it's not financial. I can be, you know, pissed off that, that my, my parents at some, at some points felt like they were kind of 
hovering and being annoying and I'm 24 year old man and I don't need you, you know? And then realize, wait a second, like these people like love you this much that they're willing to rearrange, to upturn their life, turn their life upside down to make sure that one of them is with you. Like I was not alone a single day in six months in the hospital because somebody was there. Like there were lots of people there going through things just as hard as I was and they were doing it by themselves. Like, so the reality of the situation, like the circumstances did not change, but my experience of those circumstances changed dramatically based on what I chose to put most of my attention on. And I think the thing that people kind of lose sight of when you get talking about this stuff, especially you start talking about positive psychology and, and positive thinking is they think it's about like being Pollyanna and pretending like life is perfect and ignoring your problems and like deluding yourself into thinking things are a different way than they are. And that's just not the case. It's, it's, being completely realistic, but understanding that there are kind of at least two ways of looking at reality, if not more than that. And you have to decide where, how you're going to do that. And the, your decision has a major impact on how you experience it. Yeah. So good, man. I have a friend that, um, you know, I was thinking about when we were talking about the victim mentality and she's just, you know, really depressed and just blames everybody. And, you know, she's got some challenges for sure, but I told her, I'm like, I could wallow with you in it, but it's not going to change it. I think what it does by being grateful is it allows you, you know, just enough emotional bandwidth to make the, the, the decisions to get yourself out of that place. Because, you know, I, I'm sure you know how depression is. It's debilitating. Like it literally will make you completely incapacitated where you just can't get up and do anything. Yeah. So if, if you choose to stay grateful, even though your situation might suck, you know, you, you can work your way out of it. And that's what I think is the most important thing. So if anybody out there is watching this, you struggle with depression, make a gratitude list. I do it all the time. I'll literally just think, write down 10 things that I'm grateful for. And it'll help me, you know, kind of look at the world a little bit more optimistically. And I think I've read somewhere that it actually rewires your brain. because Yeah. And you start seeing other things throughout the day. You're like, oh, yeah, I'm grateful for that, too. Or, oh, yeah, I'm grateful. Like, you didn't think of it in the morning, but you'll start versus seeing all the shit that you complain about. Right. Cause you, you can, you can very easily, that's like the weeds. You're just letting weeds grow now. And that's what happens it, naturally. Yeah. I mean, I, I call it the, I call it the, the, the silver Volkswagen effect, but you can call it whatever works for you. And, and what I mean is if you go buy a silver Volkswagen and start driving around pretty soon, you're going to see every second car feels like it's a silver Volkswagen. All of a sudden you're like, what, what's going on? Like, why, why, where are all these, why is Volkswagen selling all these cars? Well, the same cars that you drive with and see every day on the on your road to work or whatever but it, now you're aware of it now you're looking for them and so therefore you see them and so the same thing happens with with things we're grateful for right is is if we decide you know i'm grateful for my family for example then are you you're you're going to seek out evidence to support your belief right and so instead of seeing the arguments and the the inconveniences which are all still there because that's called having a family you're going to notice the things that you're grateful for about your family because you've told yourself that's that's who I am and that's one of the things that I'm conscious of. So yeah, hugely, hugely powerful thing to do. And again, it's work. Like I can't emphasize that enough because I think so often people listen to this and they're like, well, that's great for you. Like you're a grateful person. No, I'm a regular person who works at being grateful every day. It's a, it's a very different thing. Right. That's an important point to, to note for sure. What about, um, do you have any tips or tricks for staying the course when like, you know, when you get tired for me, it's my morning routine. Like I, I pretty much 
you know, do the same thing every day, start my morning the same way, the cold shower, the workouts, the cold showers, you know, read a little bit of the word, I visualize. Uh, and then uh, even at night, the way I shut down, you know, go home and, you know, the way I, I close out my day is pretty much the same. And it gives me the consistent results. And that's kind of my, my hack, I guess, for, you know, staying the course when maybe it's not happening as fast as you want it to. Is, what's your, do you have anything? Yeah, I mean, so I'd, I'd echo that. I think habits are hugely powerful, especially in hard times because they get, they ground you, right? And they give you that sense of like, when things are in turmoil around you, having that consistency of things that you can depend on because you control them and because, it's, you know, that's, that's important. Um, the other thing that I use when, like in terms of kind of keeping myself going and, and making myself push forward is as simple as this is being really, really clear about what it is you're working towards. Like so many people, I would, I would, well, definitely the vast majority of people, I don't know, I don't want to get into percentages, but vast majority of people really don't know what they want. Yeah. Right. They know what they don't want. Maybe. Um, and they maybe have some vague ideas of what they think they want, but they don't really like, do you want to make a lot of money? I want to make a lot of money or whatever. I want to be happy. I want to make a lot. Okay, great. I want to even even something that sounds pretty quantitative, like I want to make a lot of money, can mean two very different things to do different people, right? What's a lot of money to one might be nothing to another, and vice versa. So, so what do you really want, right? And and more importantly than that, why do you want it? Like, so a lot of people will, I, I've encountered this. People will set goals because I, I you know do a workshop or a session with somebody or a group of people and make them write down a goal and they write it down because they're supposed to. Uh, but they don't really know why. And they don't really like, oftentimes it came out of nowhere because they were just brainstorming and they dumped something on a piece of paper and they may or may not care about it all that much. If you don't really care about it, then you're not going to do it, right? And if it doesn't really matter to you, you're not going to do it. So why do you want what you want is way is a, is a far more important question to answer than what you want. Um, who you want to become is a way more a powerful thing to be thinking about than specific goals or, or landmarks you want to hit, because again, those will change yeah. and that's okay. Like, I think people get scared about, Oh, well, if, what if I change my goal? Well, maybe your circumstances in life completely changed. And then it kind of would be stupid to have the same goal because your reality is totally different. Um, but who you want to be probably isn't going to change all that much. Cause that's based on deep things like your values and your character that hopefully are not changing all that much. Um, so thinking about who do I want to become and, and then goals become a vehicle to get you there, right? Like the attainment or not of a goal is very secondary to who you become in the pursuit of the goal, in my opinion. Same. So, you know, like, am I, am I, am I glad? Am I proud that I've ran some marathons? Sure. Um, it was rewarding, but look, the, I don't even know if I still have the, all the medals. I know I gave away a couple of them. I think one of them is hanging on a doorknob somewhere. Um, but what I learned about myself, right? So who I became in the process of training for and running those marathons has been infinitely valuable and applicable in so many other areas of my life. That's the real reward from having done it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I compare a lot of the journey of becoming this better version of yourself. I parallel it to like the Israelites when they left Egypt. God says, I want to take you to this better place. You know, you're, you're not, you weren't born to be a slave. You know, you, you were born to be a gardener and maybe you're, this other person's a blacksmith. Like they were doing things that they weren't born to do. 
you know, and I see so many people in the world, you're right, they don't know what their purpose is. They're working in jobs that they don't like. They use football and beer on the weekends to escape the reality. Number one fear of the dying, Ronnie Ware says, is people that didn't have a courage to live a life for themselves. So they didn't go out. They didn't step out. They never left security. They stayed in Egypt. They stayed at their job that they hate. They never stepped out. And I do believe that it's it's that journey through the wilderness uh, that prepares you for the promised land. Even if you look at the Israelites, there was a reason why God fed them with the manna. You know, he gave them one day work because he was trying to teach them to trust them, let them with the fire and the cloud. And he did all these things because he was trying to prepare them to, you know, trust him and be in a relationship with him so that when they got in their promised land, they could handle the blessing. And it's like, I just wonder, you know, for me, I, I'm thinking like, I'm very clear on the vision for my life. And I think it, it it's evolved over time. You know, I, I kind of saw, I had an idea for what it might be. It was like a speck on the horizon. And as I, I moved toward it, it became bigger and clearer. And I think, I think probably everybody has an idea of what they want to do. You know, they see that speck, but they're, they're scared probably to step out is what it boils down to. And I don't know, like what advice would you give somebody? Is it, you know, like, I think, I think getting around a community of people, like someone like you, it's contagious. You get around somebody that's going after it and then it'll rub off on you, man. It just does. So what, what advice would you give? Yeah. So that's, that's brilliant advice, right? You're, you're the average of the five people you hang around with is, is, is a hundred percent accurate. Uh, it doesn't mean you need to cut out the, the underachievers in your life completely, but you don't need to be taking advice from them for sure. Um, what else? You're going to die, <laughs> right? You don't have a lot of time. I don't care if you're 20 or you're 90, you probably don't have as much time as you think you do. Yeah. And, and yet at the same time, it's never too late to start. So like most things in life are paradoxical, right? Like the opposite is also true in some ways. So it's, it's easy to be 50 and go, well, my, my, my course is set. Like I made my decision when I was 25 and I'm, I've been working at this company for 20 years and you know, like this pension is out there and I got to get it. So I'm locked in. Okay. Can you not, can you do something on the side? Can you do something on the other 120 hours a week that you've got or whatever it is? Um, you can, you can choose not to, but you could, if you wanted to, right? Like, so yeah, I think again, it comes back to, it comes back to, you're going to die. What do you want it to have meant? What do you want people to be able to say when you're gone? Um, I have, I have, I have been in that deathbed. I have laid in that place of, of thinking I'm in this hospital. So I don't like, I literally can't leave this, these walls. So like most of what I'm going to accomplish in my life is, is, is written. I'm done. Am I okay with that? I wasn't. Um, it's, and it's, and it wasn't like the movies where it's like, I've got this big, clearly defined thing that I wanted to do that I hadn't done. It was just a sense of like, I've got a lot of potential that I haven't tapped. Right. Um, and, and so again, I just think a lot of people have not given themselves the time or the permission to even dream, to even think about it. Like we've just, we get, we get used to our routines. We get used to our day to day we were thinking about the weekend and we never stopped to go is this where I want to where I want to go is this working for me is this taking me is is the path I'm on day to day taking me closer or further from from what I ultimately want right 
And, and so, you know, one of the steps in the, in the roadmap is, is assessing, is periodically stopping and going, okay, is my day-to-day path working? Like, is, are my habits working? Am I becoming more of the person I want to be? Am I a better version of myself today than I was last year? Uh, and if the answers to those questions are yes, then you're probably heading in the right direction. If the answer is no, then stop and do something. Right. So what, what, what about you? What's your vision? What do you want to do with the rest of your life? Do you, do you have a pretty clear path? Yeah, I mean, so there's, it's also, it's, it's multifaceted, right? I always look at it in terms of like, kind of the wheel of life or whatever the, the tool is you like to use. But so there's like, you know, there's, there's financial goals and there's family goals and there's physical goals and there's spiritual goals. Ultimately, I mean, I want to touch a million lives. That's one of the big kind of professional goals that I have um, for myself. Um, what that looks like, I, it, that's purposely vague so that the, 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 the way to get there might change. Um, I want to be in, in better physical shape this year than I've ever been. And I want that to continue to be the case until I'm, you know, physically stopped from that being true. I think that most of us have this idea that we hit our physical peak at 20. And unless you're an elite athlete, that's probably not true. Um, I want to know my kids really well and I want them to know me really well and I want them to be supported and loved and have the courage and, and the, the foundation from which to believe that they can go and do anything that they want to do. Uh, I want to have a fantastic marriage. Uh, I want to beat the statistics that say that we're supposed to get divorced in the next couple of years. Um, so yeah, there's, I mean, I could write paragraphs, but, but to your point, the only reason I can even talk about that to any degree is because I spent some time thinking about it. Like there's no magic to this. Just book off some time and think about what it is you want. And, and also know, I think a lot of people never start because they're afraid of getting it wrong or they're afraid of not having the right answers. And we're not etching any of this in stone, like rewrite it next week if it feels wrong, right? right? It's way easier to iterate on some, on a rough draft than it is to like create out of thin air. So start. Do you help people with their vision statements? Because you do some coaching. Do you actually help people clear on that? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I do with the client is say, what do you want? Now that's an incredibly daunting question for most people, which makes you realize how little people have given thought to that. Um, and so I make them articulate it and, and we don't do that on a call. I give them time to do it because it takes time, right? And, I get, and, and the big thing for me is until you have metrics, until you have some measurable things that you can measure yourself against, you won't really know whether you're progressing or not. You'll have some vague sense maybe. Right. But how can I know if I'm, if I'm really fitter this year than I was last year? Well, if I look at, if I keep track of my workouts, for example, then, and I keep track of my PBs or my PRs, then I have a really nice tangible measurement of whether or not I'm getting stronger or faster or whatever. Um, you know, same thing goes for financial freedom. Like do I have less debt this year than I did last year? All of those things. Measurement is a big piece of that. And you can't measure it unless you've created some measurements for yourself. So, um, you know, when I'm selling coaching to people, the thing that I tell them is it's not a magic bullet. What it will do for you is two things. One, it's going to help you get really clear about what it is you want in the first place. Cause most people don't know Two, It's going to help you to create some measurements around that so that, you know, when you're making progress. And then three, it's going to hold your feet to the fire and make sure you actually do it. Everybody listening to this right now, 
hopefully has learned something in our conversation, but you also know far more than you need to know already, right? Like if you just applied everything you already know, your life will get infinitely better. And that's true for me as well, right? So it's not like the information, lack of information is not the problem. If information was the problem, everybody would have 2% body fat, right? We all know like it, nobody, there is nobody eating at McDonald's because they think it makes them healthy, right? They do it because they want to, they do it because whatever. Easy. It's easy, right? So you don't need to know more stuff. You need to do more of the things you know you should be doing. That's it right there. So if you're just tuning in, I'm talking with Mark Black. He is a heart and double lung transplant, and he is the only man in history to run a marathon with someone else's heart and lungs. So tell us about your uh, your mentorship group for entrepreneur dads. Yeah, so I, I have been coaching for uh, about a decade now, and I, I that came because I was – I've been speaking for like 15 years. And what I realized in keynote speaking, which is amazing and I love it, but the problem is usually I'm at a conference with a couple hundred people and I get 45 minutes, right? Kind of like, kind of like this podcast, right? And I can share some ideas and hopefully a light bulb goes on for somebody, but behavior change takes time. Uh, and, and your life, a life change can be instigated in a moment, but it doesn't happen in a moment. It takes time and consistent practice uh, over a period of time. And so I realized that to help people really make that transformation last, I had to do something to support them and coaching was the, the natural consequence of that. And then I thought about, well, who can I most help? Like who, A, who needs what I teach and B, who can I connect with and who will connect with me? And what, what eventually came to, to, to mind was I can help the guy who is me five years ago right? I can help the guy who's me three years ago because I've been there. I've walked in his shoes. I know what it's like. Um, and so that's where helping entrepreneur dads came from is because I want, I want to be able to help the guy who is either on his way, but doesn't know how to get to the next step is working the job that he hates, but has this dream for a business that he wants to start. Or maybe the guy that's doing really well in the business. The, the other thing that I've encountered a lot is the business took off better than he expected but now he doesn't know how to balance his life anymore uh, because the business is taking up way more time than he ever thought it would. And he hasn't seen his kids in three weeks and his wife is going, where, you know, do you still live here? So um, yeah. So I help entrepreneurs dad scale their business without losing track of who they are and why they're building the business in the first place. Awesome. Where can people find that at? Where can they sign up? Um, so Founding Fathers, uh, I'm going to make sure I get this right. Foundingfathers.com will take you to the Facebook group. Um, or if you go to just markblack.ca, that's also my website and you'll find, find links and info to that there as well. What's the Founding Fathers site? What is that about? So it's just right now, it's a Facebook group um, and it's, it's, for, it's for entrepreneur dads. And we just talk about your, their challenges, their, their obstacles, the things that, they, that they're dealing with. And, and I help them those who are so so there's a one level of guy who just hangs there and gets the free information and that's cool and then there's some who want to take the next step and they work in the mastermind group where we we work one-on-one -on -one with people to help them to scale the business while also um either maintaining or building their their fitness and their finances and their family uh, relationships as well that's awesome and the book's called live life from the heart yes sir and that's on amazon it's on amazon it's on my website wherever 
wherever books are sold, as they say, although not in not in brick and mortar bookstores anymore. But uh, yeah, I'd like to get in Barnes and Noble myself. Yeah, you know what? I I I didn't get in Barnes and Noble. I did get in Chapters here in Canada um, for a little bit when it first came out, and frankly, it was a cool little ego trip for a minute to see your book on a bookshelf. But you're way better off selling them on Amazon. You make more money too. I went to um, Manhattan and went to the Amazon bookstore. They actually have like a brick and mortar bookstore. Oh, wow. so I, I literally took my book. I have my book in my backpack and I put it in the window. I put it on the shelf in, in the window. And then I put it on uh, books that have sold. I forget how many million copies. It was Michelle Obama's book. So I put mine next to it. I took pictures and put them on social media. So many people reached out to me thinking it was real. <laughs> They're like, oh my God, I can't believe you made it. And I was like, it was a joke. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's awesome. It's anyway. visualization though. <laughs> right, exactly. That's why I should put on my vision board. So what about social media? Where can people find you there? Uh, Mark Black Speaks um, on Instagram, Facebook. Mark Black on Clubhouse, if you're playing on that platform yet. I'm, I'm playing with it, but I'm also playing with it cautiously because it, it can be a big time suck if you're not careful. So I know that's the one Gary's talking about now, Gary V. I got I to gotta look into it. I'm like, damn it, I've always resist when they come out with a new one. Well, it's hard because you don't know how long they're going to last and whether you want to really invest in something that could be gone in a year, right? It's a challenge. Yeah, I actually made a parlor account and then I'm gone. So I, I feel you on that. All right, everybody, this was Mark Black. Thank you for coming on, Mark. It was amazing. I hope uh, I know people really enjoyed it. They benefited. Um, Thanks, Rob. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Definitely look forward to uh, just you know staying connected to you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, man.